It's time for Forward Nation Radio. Now here he is, the host of Forward Nation Radio, David Leventhal. Welcome to Forward Nation Radio. I'm David Leventhal. Thank you, as always, for joining us on our special post-first round of Democratic presidential debates, editions of Forward Nation Radio. And yes, I did say editions, because we are going to break down our post-debate analysis into two or possibly three different shows. Because what the hell, there were two debates, we should at least have that much analysis. That and the fact that it's so exciting to spend a few minutes actually talking about decent people trying to run our government and the possibilities of what government can do if it's not run by the garbage currently in charge. Part one today will be an analysis of the major issues discussed during the debate and a look at the contrast that was exposed on those issues, not so much within the Democratic Party, but between the Democratic Party and the governing Republican Party. Part two will be looking to the questions posed to the candidates and answering the way I would have liked to have seen them answered and discussing why. And I think I'm going to have a third show on analyzing the 20 candidates in there very briefly, their good moments and their bad moments. I hope you choose to subject yourself to all that because I think it'll be valuable. Anyway, again, really uplifting for many of us to look at people who actually are decent human beings and want to do a decent job running this country for the benefit of people in this country and the world. Also, a chance to spend two hours away from being lied to by the President of the United States. What an opportunity. Two hours? Two hours for each debate, of course. So four hours, really, away from being lied to. And not just by the President, but basically four hours away from being lied to. The difference between these two political parties was amply demonstrated by the fact checks that came out after the two debates. And to basically sum up what the fact checks found, there were fewer misstatements made during these debates, these two-hour debates by all of the candidates combined, than are typically tweeted during a Trump bowel movement. Yet, basically, the candidates went up there, and while there were times, certainly, where they tried to sugarcoat their record and some of what they believed in, for the most part, these were people who actually engaged in honest debate and honest discussion. What a remarkable breath of fresh air. I want to start, before I get into the substance of the first debate and and highlight the policy statements. Uh, I want to talk for a few minutes, I guess, about the format of the debate. And some of it, I'm not sure what to make of this. And you could, of course, you will be forming your own opinions on this. But I, my stomach was turned a little bit regarding debates before the debates even started. The whole lead in to it, the, the intro music and the intro graphics. Was this a serious presidential debate or was this pro wrestling? Because is, is there anything in this country, I guess, that, that doesn't get treated as if it's reality TV? And I'm thinking, yeah, here's the media screwing everything up again. Here's the media that basically shows its true color. And here's the media, frankly, that leads to a Donald Trump. That we have turned presidential politics into leadership of the so-called free world. Into live TV. 
into entertainment, into professional wrestling. Like enough with the cute graphics, enough with the, I don't know, martial music or whatever the hell that was leading into the debate. Why don't you treat this with the deference, with the decorum that is required? Oh, right. I know. Because the media's job isn't to advance the debate of U.S. politics. The media's job is to make money. And that's something that we always need to be reminded about. Because that's the kind of thing that leads to Donald Trump and the Republican Party. One of the things that I immediately, of course, started thinking about with the format of the debate was the whole idea of the gotcha moments. Again, that's reality TV. That's entertainment-based TV. Looking for gotcha moments, gotcha questions, at a time when maybe serious policy analysis uh, would really have been the better way to go there. Of course, again, that would have been more substantive and less entertaining. What was remarkable is how substantive, generally, the debate was among the people participating in it more so frequently than the people asking the questions or the people doing it. I'm reminded, of course, that this whole idea of the way this is done, and I I give NBC some leeway on this one because you've got 10 people on the stage and you can't, the format doesn't allow for what really should be the basis of presidential decision-making, which is nuance and substance and complicated argument. When they start off by saying you're going to have a minute and then you're going to have 30 seconds if you're not the first one to be called on. I understand that in the debate format. I understand they need to move the questions forward. But I'm also reminded how this is not the venue for thoughtful people. It is not the venue to produce thoughtful president. I am reminded of Donald Trump eventually saying while he was president, uh, you know, healthcare is complicated. Who knew that? Well, of course, the the answer, as I've said on this show many times, is everybody but you knew that. But of course, if all you do is watch reality TV, then maybe you don't really understand complication and you don't understand nuance. And the debate was set up just by virtue of the way debates are to favor sound bites over deep, thoughtful analysis, sound bites over what might be presidential mean or presidential uh, bearing. And that, of course, definitely gave an edge to some participants in this debate over others. Uh, Post-debates, obviously, there has been a a lot of talk about how Kamala Harris has rebooted or or raised her presidential profile here, has given her campaign a huge boost. And rightly so. She did very, she stood out during the debates. On the other hand, of course, she stood out not necessarily because of the great substance of her, her ideas. And I like Kamala Harris, by the way, and she is someone I would great, gratefully and gladly pull the lever for if she ends up being the nominee. She may be my choice to be the nominee. But of course, having a background as a federal prosecutor is particularly conducive to doing well in this kind of a format. I compare her to one of my early favorites, Elizabeth Warren. And Elizabeth Warren as you all know, if certainly if you've been listening to the show, you know, has been making a name for herself through her policy details, her detailed policy proposals, her thoughtful contemplation of issues facing this country, and has been pushing the debate forward as a result. Unfortunately, this kind of a format is not good for that. And I'm happy to see, and I 
felt that Elizabeth Warren did a great job in the debates. I'm happy to see that that's generally been the, the consensus, especially given the fact that this is absolutely not a format conducive to that. I hope that people are going to make their choices from a lot more than these presidential debates. And obviously, these presidential debates need to be an amuse-bouche for most of us that will ultimately lead us to consume more thoughtful considerations of the, of the candidates' policy positions through longer articles in magazines, newspapers, and the like. I think of the way the format was done in the entertainment aspect of Chris Matthews, who I'm perfectly reasonably happy with during his show on MSNBC. But at one point before, I think it was the second debate, he points out that they were looking for a fight in that debate. They were disappointed about the first debate. Just think about that for a moment. What a statement about where the media is on this subject. Because those of us who want this country to be run by a decent human being who will do good things for society and replace the son of a bitch who is currently misrunning this country, what we are not looking for is a fight. And I know Chris Matthews is on MSNBC and God knows he's not going to want Trump to win in 2020. On the other hand, he knows where his bread is buttered and he knows where MSNBC's money is. And if they can get a fight going that may let Donald Trump squeeze by again in 2020 and get reelected, well, that's where they're going to be. And keep that in mind for the next year and change, because that when Donald Trump talks about the media aligned against him, as he undoubtedly will, keep in mind that the media is doing everything it can, basically, to get this son of a bitch reelected president, because that's where the money is. And in the post-debate analysis, as I'm watching even on the so-called liberal MSNBC, could, could we please have a liberal on TV? I am reminded about how our news shows, even those that are supposedly liberal, are basically dominated by conservative guests. Yes, you do have the occasional liberals on. Sometimes you have liberals who have shows. But overwhelmingly, you have conservatives who get to show their good taste by saying, as in the case of, let's say, Nicole Wallace, I do not like Trump. That makes me a reasonable, a reasonable analyst, a reasonable commentator, someone in the middle. Well, I'm reminded that Nicole, or I'd like to remind you that Nicole Wallace served in the boy George administration, George W. Bush. With all due respect, that doesn't make you the center. And I'll have more on this later on, later in the, later in the show today. I'd really love it if we had some actual liberals who were willing to come on the show afterwards in the post-debate analysis and speak in favor of liberalism. Chris Matthews, former Republican. Uh, uh, Brian Williams, not sure what he really is. I suspect he's certainly not ultra-conservative in his ideology, but I also expect, given where he's come from, he's not really a flaming liberal either. Um, the media coverage, I think, was reflected accurately by the New York Times in its post-debate headline, Democrats denounce inequality, but diverge over how to fix it. Again, trying to make a horse race a fight out of something that actually was remarkably civil and showed remarkable agreement from beginning to end. With all due respect to the New York Times headline, and of course, as is typical in the New York Times, the article was a little more nuanced than the headline was. But what horse shit? Because it is remarkable how much unanimity there was among 20 people on two debate stages over how to fix what is wrong with this country. And yes, while it's true that we did get to see the sharp 
contrast in this country about policy by looking at this debate. The sharp contrast we got to see was not within the Democratic Party for the most part, but between the Democratic Party and their governing Republican Party. That the contrast was shown starkly between people who have a modicum of decency and integrity and people who do not. And I'll leave it to you to figure out which group falls in where. But as we get into discussing the debate, of course, the post-debate analysis is always, who won? Everything's a horse race. Well, who won the debate? And I will not really engage in that for the most part, but I will say this. uh, Who I think won the debate is probably someone I don't think anybody in the media has said won the debate. And who I think won the debate was Bernie Sanders. And I think Bernie Sanders won the debate before the debate even started. I'm not saying his performance was the best. I'm not saying he stood out. I'm not saying he improved his case. What I'm saying is, for four hours over two nights, Bernie Sanders, or it was demonstrated, the influence that Bernie Sanders has had on this political party in just a few years, in just four years or so. How remarkable it was for two nights to see Democrats being Democrats. And yes, that is Bernie Sanders' influence. He may not be the best candidate, may certainly may not get the nod, but whoever does will be strongly influenced by Bernie Sanders, and that was made clear over the two nights of this debate. There was remarkable agreement on the progressive agenda, and that is what I would like to focus on as I talk about what was discussed at the debate and what we should learn from it. This was an argument by 20 people against unfettered capitalism. Everyone on that stage supported the idea that government needed to have an impact on our economy and regulate the excesses of the moneyed interests in this country. The moneyed elite and their corporations could not have been happy with what took place on those two on that same stage, I guess, over two nights. Because that remarkable agreement, as the Trump administration and the Republican Party works to unwind regulations left and right in this country, we are reminded that there is a political party that still believes in the necessity of regulation. Yes, it is too late, as we're reminded this week, for 30 horses at Santa Anita Racetrack in California who are dead in just this racing season alone. And unsurprisingly, a report just came out that said they are dead because of unfettered capitalism and the desire to make as much money as possible. Millions of people around the world are dead because of unfettered capitalism. Billions are destitute. But it is not too late, we are reminded, for many to put a nanny in charge of the babies. It is remarkable how much agreement there was on this debate on the concept of inclusion and compare that, contrast that with the other political party. Yes, it was more than a little bit hokey how they lapsed into Spanish during the debate. Beto especially, who unprompted, just went into Spanish the first time he had a chance to speak. Stephen Colbert noted his efforts to lock up 
the Hispanic, Hispanic vote. It was a little bit hokey. But as Stephen Colbert didn't mention, uh, it's important to note that by seeking to lock up the Hispanic vote, Beto, in a sense, was so, showing the same electoral strategy as Donald Trump, but in a very different way, locking up the Hispanic vote. Because 20 people on that stage were trying to lock up the vote of Hispanics. They were trying to lock up, in a good way, the votes of blacks across this country. At one point in the second debate, Kamala Harris sort of pulled the black woman card a little bit. Like, hey, if we're going to talk about black issues, look around, I'm the black person on the stage. And what was really remarkable about that was the extent to which me anyway, and I expect other viewers, looked at this and said, you've got 10 people up on the stage there right now, yes, who haven't lived the black experience, but at least are empathizing with it and promoting the interests of blacks. You are not the only one on that stage capable of speaking in favor of the interests of black people, even though you are unquestionably in a unique position to do so. It is remarkable how much agreement there was on, on that. There is remarkable, and I'm happy to see, agreement on how, how well Julian Castro did during the debate. His efforts to address inequality, how well he stood out, how presidential, frankly, he seemed, how on top of the subject, how his ethnicity just didn't seem to matter at all, other than perhaps giving him a unique view and, and a unique empathy that maybe not everyone could share, at least in the same respect. Although, when it comes to, to empathizing with minorities or people who have been subjugated in this country, pretty much everybody on those stages fell into a category that could. It was absolutely remarkably inspiring. One of the remarkable moments, I thought, during the debate, and the underreported moments of the debate, was they asked a question about how do you help black people? And I forget, I think it was Amy Klobuchar who was asked that question, and she talked, of course, about economic justice. And Julian Castro came in next, and God bless him, said, look, this is not just about economic justice. This is about racial and social justice because this is more than about economic opportunity because we have to understand implicitly is what he was saying. This is what he was saying. We are not playing on a level playing field. This was a remarkable call, in my view, to affirmative action. This is the support. This is the argument for affirmative action. The argument first advanced by Lyndon Johnson in the early days of affirmative action that you do not take someone who has been hobbled by chains for hundreds of years, and basically, I'm paraphrasing here, and all of a sudden say, okay, ready, set, go, everyone gets to compete equally and think that you've been fair, that it's going to require more than that. In the words of Justice Blackmun in one of the early pro-affirmative action Supreme Court cases, in order to get beyond racism, you must first take account of race. All of this, I think, was implicated in a short answer. And I wish there was more time to explain this. I guess there is for those listening to Forward Nation Radio who may have missed this. Because this was all in his answer. And this is important and this is brilliant. Because this is affirmative action and this is why it continues to be necessary. Economic justice for poor people is absolutely necessary. It is simply not enough. Because blacks and other disfavored minorities do not play on a level playing field. Uh, Pete Buttigieg showed his presidential timber. I'll get back to that later on. 
But was it just me or was the fact that he was gay basically absolutely irrelevant for two hours? You think that would have been the same case if he was standing on a Republican stage? I'll leave that for you to decide, but I know what my answer is overwhelmingly. It is remarkable what diversity there was on that stage and what unanimity there was in supporting and promoting diversity. There was a discussion of health care. The fact that there, of course, were disputes on what we should do about what is about one one sixth of the U.S. economy, more than that, a remarkable part. Yes, a complicated area in this country. But what is remarkable is not that there was some disagreement. Of course, there was some disagreement. I disagree with myself on what we should do about health care. What is remarkable is what was universally accepted. And that is universal health care. 20 people on that stage over two nights all just took for granted the idea that everybody in this country should be covered by health care. That America could manage to do what every other industrialized advanced nation of the world is able to do. Maybe one of the most remarkable moments of the debate is when they asked, I think it was the second night, how many of you would support providing health care to undocumented immigrants? And every single hand went up. And every single hand went up to an issue that can't really be explained in one minute. It's easy to demagogue on this one. People who steal their way into this country, we're going to give them, we're going to reward them for it. But as several respondents actually pointed out, it's not only humane, which is why we do this. It's also a good cost savings. It's also good for us. It is selfish to provide people with health care so they could go to a doctor when they get sick. Because these people are students. They are employees. They are leaders. And they should be able to go get health care. Remarkable agreement on that one. While Republicans are building walls, Democrats are offering health care. Tim Ryan, at one point, his name's not getting bandied around very much and may not be for much longer, pointed out that a terrorist at Guantanamo Bay gets better health care than children at our border, refugees fleeing great danger or economic distress. I think it's remarkable when he makes that statement, again, to look at the divide in this country. How Republicans will look at that and say, yeah, why are we giving health care to people we have detained in Guantanamo Bay? Whereas Democrats all will respond by going, yeah, why aren't we giving health care to children? Quite the divide. On climate, total agreement. The number one priority for most of the people on that stage was what the other political party doesn't think exists. Climate change or you know, science. Guns. Again, of course there is a contrast about what we do about guns. We all are contrasted within ourselves about what the right thing to do about guns. But 20 people thought that we needed to take whatever common sense gun measures we could take and we could agree to to limit the violence and the the useless destruction of human life that is constantly going on in this country. 
Whereas the other political party, we are reminded, owned by gun manufacturers. Women's autonomy and empowerment. Again, this was a big issue of several. Certainly, Kirsten Gillibrand has made this her, her big issue, her, uh, her, her marketing, her target market, or her branding, I guess. But everybody on that stage just took for granted women's autonomy with their bodies. Yes, the devil will be in the details when it comes to abortion. There will be no devil in the details when it comes to contraception in the Democratic Party. There is in the Republican Party. And the idea of women's empowerment at the workplace and everywhere else with regard to their bodies and others, no disagreement about any of that. On the economy, the party of rich versus the party of everybody else. This is what again was made utterly apparent over these two nights. That the Democratic Party of the party is the party of actual human beings. Whereas the Republican Party will be the party of mega billionaires. Yes, the Democrats struggled at times, Beto, especially to answer point blank questions about the highest tax rate. But to a large extent, again, those were gotcha questions. Whether Beto believes the top tax rate should be 70% or 60% or 85% is less important from the fact that you could bet he believes it should be a hell of a lot higher than it is now. Again, Republicans' number one policy priority, they've already gutted taxes on the super rich. They think it should go down some more. Civility. uh, Remarkable civility on the stage. I understand Donald Trump participated in the Republican debates in 2016, so that's a little unfair. But take a look at the level the, of discourse in those debates, even when it comes to civility, and compare it to this one. There was no, for instance, comparison of penis sizes in this debate. There was no name calling. There was no juvenile imbecility. Though they challenged each other, they were respectful. I am concerned. One of my students came up to had a conversation after last class and said, do you think this is going to be a bloodbath? And I said, no, actually, I think it's not going to be a bloodbath at all. I think it will be remarkably civil, and it, and it turned out to be. But I think that was easy in debate number one. We are reminded how key it is that this primary season has a long way to go and how necessary it is going to be for the Democratic candidates to keep this civil. Because at some point... This has the possibility of self-destructing when the left and the right come in conflict. But for now, this was reasonable people debating policy nuances and agreeing overwhelmingly with the basic principles. Competence. I, there were a couple of people there who didn't inspire me. That being said, I have no reticence to say that there were 20 people on that stage over two nights who made it perfectly clear that they would have been far more competent president than the current president that we have now, or for that matter, probably anything currently existing in the Republican Party. Pick any half hour of these debates, including half hours where Marianne Williamson speaks a lot, and then watch one half hour of a recent GOP debate and tell me that you can't see a dramatic difference between these two parties when it comes not only to decency, but to competence. 
what was interesting in how the debates were conducted, this is the, the, how the first debate was completely not about Trump. And the second one, I think the first one, not surprisingly, it was not all about Trump. The second debate was remarkably much about Trump. Again, to some extent, not so surprisingly, I will have a further discussion later on about why I think that was the case. But I think that a lot of the reason is, of course, Joe Biden was in the second debate. Joe Biden, of course, his branding is all about, I'm going to fight Donald Trump as if my nomination for the, for, for the Democratic Party is a fait accompli. I think that's his strategy. And so he needed to take on Trump, and he did from the moment he opened his mouth. So everybody else had to follow suit. But again, who won the debate? Bernie won the debate. It was clear that this country needs a revolution. And yes, I understand that it became a bit of a laugh line for people when Bernie started going back to revolution. But Bernie's absolutely right on that. And let me try to explain for a couple minutes what Bernie had in mind here, because he's not given enough credit for it. This is what it will take to create the kind of change that this country needs. Because we are looking here for the impossible, basically. And we may have seen it to a large extent on the Democratic stage. Leaders getting out ahead of their voters. I've said many times on this show and in class that the one thing in America that's probably worse than our political leaders is our voters. And here our leaders are getting ahead of our voters on a lot of issues. And in order for them to do that, they're going to need the support of an American public that sees through the media and sees through the bullshit to reward those people who are willing to speak on their behalf and propose policies that will benefit them. Two of the biggest moments in the course of the debates, in, in this case, biggest moments and points scored against the centrism and yes, the leader, Joe Biden, the front runner, the centrism that has governed the Democratic Party for a generation. The two biggest moments were oft repeated in debate, post-debate analysis, but completely, I think, misunderstood. And the first one, of course, is Kamala Harris's dismantling of Joe Biden on the issue of busing. Well, I spoke a couple of weeks ago on this show that Joe Biden's statement about working with segregationists it was more problematic. It was less problematic with the fact that he's talking about working with segregationists, although it is problematic. Then it was problematic at showing the complete ignorance and delusion that you're going to be able to work with Republicans. Well, in the same vein, Kamala went after him when it came to the issue of busing. And Biden defended himself. Biden, who is not really uh, being attacked as being a racist. In fact, Kamala started her statement with, I don't think you're a racist. But his response was even more troubling to many of us, which is, this: it, it wasn't that I opposed busing. I opposed a federal role. And that is worse because it is the issue of federalism or states' rights, which is more, more and more has to be the backbone of democratic politics, not leaving it up to the states. There are few things in this country at this point that can really be done, few issues of national importance that can be done at the state level. States' rights was always a term that was championed by segregationists. It was championed by the South leading up to the Civil War. Keep your federal hands off of our slaves. 
That's one of the two ways that states' rights has always been invoked in this country. One, to support bigotry. And two, however, and I think at this point this may be even the bigger issue, it's been used to support corporate dominance. Because when corporations get to pit state against state and municipality against municipality and intergovernmental bidding wars to lure businesses, like we saw with Amazon and everywhere across our economy, the states simply cannot do it. The states cannot regulate a lot. They cannot regulate pollution. The states cannot solve our pollution problem. The only way these problems get solved is through federal action. And if Vice President Biden was standing up on that stage and speaking the the Republican platform of states' rights. Well, I've always said that he's not my choice, and I hope he's not the nominee, but I will support him. Well, I'm really, you're really losing me on this one, and it becomes even more important that Joe Biden not become the Democratic nominee. The other big moment, I think, that wasn't remarked upon enough or properly actually belongs to Colorado Senator Michael Bennett, who didn't have a lot of big moments. But when Biden, again, on this issue of working working with Republicans, said, yes, I worked with these racist guys, but the point was I worked to get things done, and I was able to work with Mitch McConnell. And it was Bennett who pointed out that working with Republicans these days means capitulation. It means losing. And yes, you're proud of the fact that you were able to work with Mitch McConnell to get bipartisan legislation. But let's be clear. It is bipartisan legislation that the Democratic Party does not want. And the Democratic Party has sought to work with right-wingers who will not work with them and who do not understand the meaning of the word compromise for a generation. And it has never worked. And it will not work this time. So this debate was out about faith in the American people in the sense of understanding what they want and they need, even if they don't understand it, even if the media is discrediting it. This is a moment of promise, but also a real scary moment for those of us who understand that Donald Trump needs to be defeated in 2020. It gives us pause, and it does fall into the Biden argument that we need a centrist to be sure of beating Donald Trump. Fear and irresponsibility has always been enough to kill. But maybe Bernie's right. This is a time where this country is involved in a revolution, and all the old rules no longer apply. And in fact, we have a new playing field here. We've seen how this works just this week. David Brooks had his usual op-ed in the New York Times warning Democrats against being extremists. Because, yes, David Brooks' article actually says this. People like him who are in the middle. This lifelong Republican hack gets to call himself the middle. And people who are supporting the interests of the American public, he gets to call them extremists. George Will was on Bill Maher recently falls in the same category as David Brooks, even though even more of an extremist hack than David Brooks always was, but a solid Republican who uses false equivalencies to avoid facing reality, which is that he belongs to an awful political party. But these are the people who will get to label people extreme, who will get to throw around the word socialist to discredit people, 
who will get to ignore the fact that if you get beyond the label, if you get beyond the name calling, this is the agenda that is supported overwhelmingly by the American public. My hopes that this could finally be a time for such a revolution were emboldened not just by most of the Democratic candidates on the stage these two nights, but by the reception that they have received and the leaders of the liberal wing of the Democratic Party have received across this country. Want to be emboldened? Watch the rock star reception that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez received on the Colbert Show post-debate. But that is what it's going to take. Bernie's right. Anyway, more shows to come, face it, uh, talking about uh, different parts of the debates and what to make of them. So stay tuned and stay with us. We'll see you soon. You've been listening to Forward Nation Radio with David Leventhal. 